So we find ourselves in the second Sunday of Advent. Um, I watched a film recently called The Jesus Revolution. Has anyone seen it? No? Well, they, they actually showed it at the Mallard. And um, it was a complete sellout because 24 people wanted to go. And, uh, uh, but you can now see, see it on Netflix, Amazon Prime, Amazon Prime. And it's basically, uh, it is a true story, based on a true story about a, a revival that took place in the 60s and 70s in California amongst hippies. Um, let's watch the, film, the clip now. That was in anticipation of the film. Um, so, hippies. Now, I, I wasn't born until the 80s, so I've got no idea about any of this. <laughs> but um, tell me, it, was anyone here a hippie in the 60s and 70s? Pete Maracas, yes. <laughs> so um, those of you, so Pete, I, I asked that in the first service and we only found one, but they said, ah, but Pete Maracas was a hippie. I said, who's Pete Maracas? They said Pete Le Breton. But is it right you're called Pete Maracas because you used to have these maracas? And you, and you were, so did you like have long hair? No. Did you have any hair? Ah. <laughs> oh. So yeah, Pete is our resident hippie, but uh, you may know some, some people, I don't know. But, but the impact of what happened then um, in California in the 60s and the 70s um, was kind of felt across the world, actually, if you look at the story of it. And, and that Jesus revolution became known as the Jesus movement. And those who are part of it were known as Jesus people or Jesus freaks. And out of that revival that took place on the west coast of America, what you, what you found was that young people, particularly hippies, came to Christ. And churches in America and actually in other places grew as well. Some of you will know denominations like Vineyard and Calvary Chapel. Well, they kind of came out of that whole hippie movement. And as they planted churches all over the place, they grew exponentially. And as you look back over the history of that, of that moment in time, you'll find that many Christian organizations and uh, leaders, someone like George Verwer, who's a, who's a friend of mine who died earlier this year, um, you know, they can trace their lineage back to this Jesus revolution. A lot of the contemporary music that we sing um, in churches today from people like Vineyard and Hillsong and Jesus Culture, if you, again, you trace it back, you will find, you think about Bethel and Bill Johnson, all that kind of stuff, that they have their roots in this Jesus movement in the 60s and the 70s. If you um, are very suspicious about satanic guitars, it was they who brought them in to the church. Um, because we all know that the organ is a holy instrument, but this stuff over here certainly isn't. Um, and, and there were some kind of key things, images and ideas that came out of the Jesus revolution. And you saw some of those on that trailer. And we're going to make reference to those a bit later on. But things like the desert kind of happening on the edge. Uh, immersion, full immersion baptism in the sea. People confessing their sins and turning from a, a way of life, lives being transformed, God at work on the margins, not at the religious center. And, and in the Jesus movement, one of the key things that came out of that was this renewed focus upon Jesus, understandably, and this openness and a hunger for the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And as you look at what happened back then, there are still things taking place today that can trace their lineage back to what happened in uh, in California. Earlier this year, there was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon a Christian college 
uh, called Asbury College, which is in Kentucky. I don't know if anyone heard about that. If you read the Christian press, it became known as the Asbury Awakening. And actually, if you look at Asbury College, it can trace a lot of its heritage back to the Jesus movement of the 60s and 70s. But this Jesus revolution, these Jesus people, they didn't start in California in the 70s. You know, what happened then is just a small chapter of a much, much bigger story. And that bigger story, and we've been talking a lot about this recently, that bigger story is called the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. If you look at that text that we look at today for Mark chapter 1, you'll find that that is what Mark refers to. He says right from the outset, the beginning of the good news, the gospel, about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And what we find in this chapter in Mark is one of the opening chapters of this big story known as the gospel. And, and we today are part, another chapter of this big story called the gospel. Uh, Tom Wright sums up the gospel like this. The gospel is God's age-old plan to put the world and human beings to right. You know, we, we cannot deny that the world and humanity are broken. What's going to fix it? It is the story of the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this gospel story has its beginnings in Mark chapter 1 and continues today. And so what we're going to be doing this morning is looking at most of those verses from the first chapter of the gospel. But let me first ask you um, a Christmas quiz question. Okay, what is metalepsis? Is it A, a foot disease? Is it B, a fictional city in the Marvel movies? Or is it C, borrowing words and images from the past and using them in the present? Okay, hands up if you think it's A. Oh, foot disease, C, meta, metatarsal. Uh, hands up if you think it's B, a fictional city. No. Hands up if you think it's C. You're so clever. You really are. Well done. What a clever lot you are. Uh, metalepsis, I'm going to make reference to that as we go out. So metalepsis is, is this thing in theology around this whole thing of what you call narrative criticism. It's when a writer, in this case what we're looking at today is the Gospel of Mark, written by uh, John Mark, when a writer who's inspired by the Holy Spirit then takes words and images and pictures from the past, particularly in this case from the Old Testament, and brings that into that present moment, uses it in a present context to add depth and insight um, and weight to what he's writing about. So that as uh, the readers write what is going on here, it kind of rings bells for them when they hear about particular words and images. And so in these first eight verses from Mark chapter 1, Mark makes reference to Old Testament prophets. He talks about the wilderness or the desert. He speaks about the river Jordan, uh, about water and baptism. He talks about repentance and he talks about the Holy Spirit. And the original readers of Mark all those years ago, as they read that gospel, it would have rung all kinds of bells for them because these words and images are examples of metalepsis, words and images that have been used in the past that add depth to this big gospel story. And so if you look with me at verses 2 and 3, Mark makes reference to Old Testament prophecy. And he brings something of the past into the present. He says this, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths 
for him. And so this is a classic example of metalepsis. Now, looking at those two verses, can anyone tell me what is wrong in verses 2 and 3? If I had a prize, I'd let you have it. But um, no one? Do you want me to tell you? No? Okay, well, you won't bother me. That's fine. Um, I'm going to tell you anyway. But basically, Isaiah the prophet, despite what Mark wrote, he didn't write, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The prophet Malachi wrote that bit. Interesting when you think about the concept of biblical inerrancy, but we're not going to get into that today. But, but, but basically, Mark, the gospel writer, is saying that as the Old Testament prophets had written many years before, the Lord is on his way. But he's making it clear that before the Lord comes, someone will come before him to prepare for the people for the arrival of the Lord. And what we find in this context here where Mark is writing is that it's been observed that for 400 years, heaven had been silent. The people of God hadn't heard very much from the prophets of God, who were the ones who often spoke for God. 400 years. The presence of God uh, by the people of God hadn't been encountered in the same way as it had done in their history. And the last prophet who had spoken officially to the people of God was the prophet Malachi, who is the one who ends the Old Testament. And, and many, of the people, many of God's people at that time, in the time that Mark was writing, they were desperate to hear from God again. Heaven had been silent. And, and even though, and we've looked at this history as well, um, the people of God, they'd We'd had the exodus, they come out of uh, Egypt and made their way to the promised land, and then there was the exile, they went from the promised land to places like Babylon. Uh, they'd then come back again, they'd been released from Babylon, they'd then come back to Israel, they'd then come back to Jerusalem. And even though they found themselves back in the promised land after a time of exile, what they found was that they were in occupied territory, you know, same as it ever was, it seems. They were dominated by the Romans, and many of those who had come back from this physical exile in Babylon, when they came back to Israel and to Jerusalem, they felt that they were in a spiritual exile because they hadn't heard anything from God for a long, long time. And 400 years is a long time to wait for anything. You know, in our Western world, um, for all kinds of reasons, especially technology, travel, and communication, we can really struggle to wait. We don't have to wait for very much, do we? If we want it, uh, we can get it. You know, there are some people in Guernsey who find that one of the most frustrating things about living here, and it keeps them up at night, and they weep tears over it, is that they can't get next day or same day delivery from Amazon. <laughs> they find it hard to wait. But waiting, actively waiting for God, is actually a key part of what it means to follow Jesus. If we find waiting a struggle, we will struggle to follow Christ. You know, I've been thinking, actually, in our present context, about the Henry's development um, next door, uh, over that way, and, um, and just reflecting on the fact that a previous vicar, um, who some of you will know, Godfrey Taylor, who's, who's died um, some, some years ago, but a previous vicar, 40 years ago, prayed that God would give Trinity that site there. And here we are, 40 years later, and God has given us that building. Often, as followers of Jesus, 
we have to wait, sometimes 40 years, sometimes 400 years. It's been said that God is often slow, but he is never late. Will we be the generation that builds next door? I don't know. We'll have to wait and see what happens. And so what we find in in Mark's gospel is that God's people have been waiting for a long time, 400 years for God to come. But what they knew from Old Testament prophecy that Mark makes reference to here is that before the Lord, before God came to live among them, that there would be a forerunner or a prophet would come and get the people ready for the arrival of the Lord. Someone would come to prepare the way. And that is where John the Baptist comes in. He is a prophet. In verse 4, it says, And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. Um, Here's a picture of John the Baptist, Italian painter, uh, uh, Matteo Preti. um, And and John the Baptist kind of literally burst onto the scene. It's like he's a big character. It's like an alarm clock went off to wake the people up. John the Baptist is quite curious and strange. If you look about the the, uh, instances around his birth, you find all kinds of strange things were going on. And now he seems this rather unusual figure who lives in the desert and is like a prophet. In verse 6, it says, John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Now, this here, we just think, oh, he's got a strange diet, but this here is another example of metalepsis. One of the most significant prophets of the Old Testament was Elijah. Guess what Elijah wore? Do you want me to tell you? <laughs> Not being very responsive, you look. Um, He wore, you see it in two kings, a garment of hair and a leather belt around his waist. John the Baptist was wearing the uniform of a prophet. And not any old prophet, but one of the most significant prophets of the people of God, Elijah. And actually, if you go back to Malachi, the last prophet, who hadn't been nothing for 400 years, what you find is that Malachi said that Elijah would come to the people before the Lord returned. And John the Baptist was effectively a fulfillment of that prophecy from Malachi. He comes as a new Elijah preparing the way of the Lord. He ate locusts. And we might think it's a strange thing to do. But actually, if you look in Leviticus, the only insect that you are allowed to eat in order to stay holy are locusts. It indicated his commitment to holiness. He ate wild honey, which you find in the desert. And it indicates his radical trust in God's provision. Tom Wright um, wrote this about John the Baptist. Many had been looking for a sign from God, but they hadn't expected it to look like this, like this prophet. Many had wanted a Messiah to lead them against the Romans, but they weren't anticipating a prophet telling them to to repent. You know, I'm sure you know this, but we don't always get what we want because what we want isn't always what we need. In some ways, John the Baptist was the present that they hadn't asked for, but he was a present that God's people needed so that they might be got ready for the presence of God. 
And so John the Baptist turns up, unexpectedly in many ways, but a fulfillment of prophecy. And we find that he's out in the desert. This is uh, the desert in the Jordan, so similar kind of terrain that's, that Mark has written about here. And, and Mark talks about the wilderness or the desert twice, and then some other times actually in following verses. But he talks about the desert or the wilderness in verses 3 and 4. And the wilderness or the desert has significance. Another example of metalepsis for the people of God. The desert, first of all, was at the margin of their life. It wasn't at the center, which was Jerusalem. That was where the religious focus was. The desert was a long way from the temple in Jerusalem. And I think you can observe that when God comes to his people and the presence of God is known more acutely, it often happens at the margins and not at the center. We are part of this um, structure called the Anglican Communion, where Canterbury Cathedral and the Archbishop of Canterbury are very much at the center. But it's intriguing to see that spiritual awakening and revival is happening in countries and continents that are a long way from Canterbury. It's kind of how God works. If you ever feel like you live in a backwater because you live in Guernsey, and I'm sure that some people have said that to you, you know, that if, like people in, I know got family in London who've got, how on earth do you live here? Where do your kids go to school? What are you going to do if you need a hospital? All that kind of stuff. Uh, but sometimes we can be portrayed as a bit of a backwater. But in some ways, I'd embrace that. I'd embrace that. Because actually God often meets with his people in the margins, not at the center. And so what we find is that the desert... Uh, represents all kinds of things, other significance as well when it comes to the desert. You've got things like the Exodus from Egypt, you know, Egypt, desert, promised land. You know, you've got Babylon, uh, Jerusalem, desert, uh, Babylon. The desert is often seen as a place of testing. But one thing, the significant thing that strikes me about the desert is that the desert in the Bible is also a place where we are wooed by God. It's actually a place where God makes his love and affection known to us. Um, if you go back to Jeremiah, uh, prophet Jeremiah chapter 2, rather obscure verse, he says this, The Lord proclaims to his people, I remember your first love, your devotion as a young bride, how you followed me, where? In the desert. The desert has this image of love, of people coming together in an affectionate relationship. You know, in this context, um, in Jeremiah, the desert is a place where people have come to know the affection of God, rather like a bride and a groom. The desert can be a place where we are wooed by God, so don't be frightened of it. You know, it, it can be a place where we encounter our first love. The desert can be a place where actually our first love can be revived, where our hearts are quickened with renewed passion for God. And so the people of God returning to their first love in the desert with this prophet uh, is what is happening. And then we come uh, to verse 4. If you look at verse 4, it says that John came pre preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. You know, in order to get people ready for the return of the Lord, John calls them back to their first love. He calls them individually and as a people back to God. And they indicate their response to that calling basically by confessing their sins and getting baptized. Um, the reformer, Martin Luther, said that sin is essentially a departure from God. For whatever reason, 
those going to hear John the Baptist in the desert had departed from God. And John challenges them to confess that sin of departure and return to their first love. He then calls them uh, to the River Jordan, and they confess their sins. They're baptized by John in the river. And, and we might see someone getting baptized by full immersion in a river as, as no big deal. Surely that's the kind of thing that happens. You know, people come to faith, they get baptized. But actually what was happening here um, in the River Jordan was extraordinary for that context. And the reason for that was because Jews don't get baptized. Certainly not by full immersion, by John the Baptist in a river. Getting baptized at that time in Judaism was what happened when a Gentile, a non-Jew, the great unwashed, was what happened when they wanted to convert and become a Jew. Baptism was a ritual that Gentiles went through when they converted to Judaism. And what John, I think, seems to be saying to the people in the desert is, you are so far removed from your God, so far from your first love, that you are like a Gentile. And you need to return to the Lord and start life all over again. He, he challenges them to do a complete turn to go in another direction. There's a sense in which they've departed from God and John is calling them back to God. The, the Greek word here about repentance is metanoia, uh, which is often talked about as changing one's mind, but actually has a deeper sense. If you go to the Hebrew word shuv, shuv basically means uh, when we have turned our back on God after we've strayed, and to shuv is to come back after we have strayed. So John the Baptist, in these verses, is getting the people ready for the Lord, who we know to be the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. John gets people ready by preaching this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and by calling people back to their first love. He's asking them this question in the desert, are you ready? Now, this time of year, it's not unusual to be asked that question, is it? Are you ready? Are you ready for Christmas? Okay, put your hand up if you're ready for Christmas. One, two. You're, you're a hippie. You can't be ready for Christmas. What are you talking about? Anyone upstairs? Three. Oh, well done. We had two in the first service. Well done. We don't like people like you, but thank you. Um, I was reading an article recently in Prima magazine. Don't ask me why I was reading Prima magazine. And, and a journalist called Abigail had written a complete Christmas to-do list for a stress-free Christmas. Maybe you've read it, Ruth, Pete, I don't know. Um, and Abigail suggested that we start getting ready for Christmas at the end of the summer. She said, by that point, we should be making our own Christmas cards and cra crackers and Christmas decorations. And then she says, in October, we should make a plan for Christmas dinner. And we should start to find out from our relatives who's going to join us on Christmas Day. This is in October. And then she says in October that what you need to do is you need to book your hair, nail, and pamper appointments. <laughs> do you know, I'm so glad I got that done. Um, <laughs> and then she says early November, all of your presents should be bought, write your Christmas cards, start baking for the big day. It's Guy Fawkes. Come early December, you should decorate your house, wrap all your presents, and buy all the food. And then what she says, 
and it's just beggar's belief. In the week before Christmas, you need to do a massive deep clean of your house. So basically, you then get to Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, there's little left to do, because you're ready. Abigail's bio says that she writes about everything from fashion and beauty to travel and entertainment. She loves to spend her time scrolling endlessly through Instagram and writing stupid articles about getting ready for Christmas. (laughs) Are you ready for Christmas? I think a more important question to ask, though, is are you ready for the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you ready to return to your first love if you have strayed? You know, I think as, as, in, as individuals and as a church, and as churches on the island, I think if we want to see a spiritual awakening, like in the days of John the Baptist, like in California in the 60s and 70s, like in Asbury just this year, we need to get ready. We need to be prepared for the Lord to come and make his presence known amongst us more deeply than we know now. If we want to see a spiritual awakening where prodigals return, where people are miraculously healed, where broken relationships are restored, and where the lost find their way home to Christ, we need to get ready. When's the best time to plant a tree? 20 years ago. And we need to get ready, maybe for this generation, maybe for another generation. Spiritual awakening starts somewhere. And it often can be a long time before it comes. So, just in closing, uh, what might this opening chapter of Mark say to us about getting ready for the coming of the Lord? The first thing, I think, is that we need to practice active waiting. And that means that we need to slow down, note to self, not be so distracted and busy, and not move on too quickly. As the psalmist wrote, we need to be still before the Lord, and wait patiently for him. Often, I think, in worship and solitude and silence and prayer. And and it's part of the reason why we're going to gather tonight, to worship, to get ready for the coming of the Lord. We need honesty and repentance about our sin, about where we truly are at in our relationship with God. If we're caught in sin, to get ourselves ready for the coming of the Lord, then we need to recognize that, confess and repent. If we strayed from the Lord then our hearts need to turn back to him. If we're hard and distant, then we need to return to our first love, be taken into the desert so that we can be wooed by God. And finally, we need to be filled with the Spirit. John the Baptist at the end of this said, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And being baptized by the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, being overwhelmed by the Spirit, whatever term you want to use, is is a one event but also an ongoing event we need to seek to be filled with the spirit time and time and time again i think if we want a spiritual awakening in our lives in the life of this church in the island we need to get ready and maybe maybe just maybe in our lifetime the lord will come with healing in his wings Are you ready for the Lord Jesus Christ?